Hello, our dear lurkers. We're back with another episode of the Third Age Babylon 5 podcast. And for those who missed our last episode, our gala special for season one, Happy New Year. We are happy to have you all back. And we start with season two, finally. Um, the first episode, uh, Points of Departure, is our topic today. But before we go into this, uh, we have like always, a little introduction question prepared. Um, and since we have a rather prominent um, spaceship introduced in this episode, we thought, okay, when we have the chance of owning our um, very own spaceship, what would we name it? So maybe Alex, you want to start? Yeah, I already uh, decided that I can't make a choice between just uh, one, so I, I will have to bring two names to the table. One would be Tisiphone, which is a generic sci-fi uh, Greek mythology reference. And that is solely the case because back when I was very young and a very big fan of Mass Effect, I spent an exorbitant amount of time writing fan fiction for that. And that involved one hero ship with that name. So I, I couldn't resist re re reuniting that. Uh, if I couldn't do that because I, I'm too ashamed confronting this past, um, it would be Argo, because I, I like the reference to the Argonauts, and also there's a very fun Filk song about S Star Trek with uh, that name. So uh, it, it would just be a fun reference in two directions. How about you, Elena? Uh, I think I would call my ship Malleus, um, as in, in magical and spell, and I, of course, had the evil spell, like the, the damaging spell that often witches were at. Uh, a trial for Malleus Maleficarum I had in mind. And I think Malleus is just the more better, um, the part of the name that is easier to handle. That would probably be my wicked ship, probably a ship that goes rogue at some point. My ancestors were pirates, for real, actually. So, um, yeah. <laughs> it's funny to see that both of you cho uh, choice uh, cho uh, choices are something more, well, ancient um, because my uh, naming choices also fall in this department um, and also in the Greek mythology I would go um, for Medusa uh, just because I really really like this this idea of, of this this figure um, though more of a yeah a broader spectrum um, that a more modern take of this character um, and the other, because I can't dis uh, decide just on one also, uh, would be the Argonaut, <laughs> as you already um, mentioned before. So, yeah, interesting to um, hear now would be, our dear Lurkers, how would you call your own spaceship? Um, and yeah, maybe does it have anything special? Because I am certain if I can't, I wouldn't be able to um, visit the Zen Garden at B5, then I would certainly have something similar on my ship just to where I can lock out everyone else to keep uh, to myself. But enough of that. Let's go back to the episode. And who I'm not sure if I would manage a good uh, summary of this one. Uh, do you have anyone? I on can TV? do one if, if, if you would like to. Yes, please. Okay, points of departure. Well, we jump right back into the action where season one left off. It's only a few days after the president was uh, 
killed, uh, Garibaldi was shot, and as we learned, Sinclair was called back to Earth to sort of be debriefed on the entire situation. And uh, yeah, it's Susan Ivanova left in charge of the station, and she seems pretty overwhelmed with everything, although she keeps the crowd following her fairly well in check. And we get a, a new commander on the station who uh, very quickly gets permanently assigned here. It is Sheridan, a.k.a. the Star Killer, who is not a choice that uh, the Mimbari will be very happy with. And as it so happens, uh, the Mimbari bring somebody new to the table as well. It's the Tragati, a ghost ship or rogue vessel that has uh, kind of gone the same path as yours, Leila, apparently, um, and looks to reignite the Mimbari war. And this is the big imminent crisis that needs to be resolved. And I would say this is sort of the big thing, the big hook of the episode, unless I forget something major. No, I wouldn't say, say that. I mean, throughout um, the entire episode, Sheridan tries to give his good luck speech. And if that is any indicator for how much luck this man is going to have, we are in for a very rocky season because he very barely with five minutes to spare uh, does it. Uh, as is mentioned in the synopsis, this episode starts with a new character, a new commander, John Sheridan. And that's for a very particular reason, which uh, you, Micah, already found out on your own as you were preparing for season two. And I already sent you like a trimmed down version of the uh, of the JMS statement. So, um, I mean, I, I guess we all will give our two cents on the whole reasons why we have a new commander. But maybe you want to start because uh, it's it's sort of the most relevant for you because it's new to you. Um, funny thing. Though, before we go uh, to Michael O'Hara, uh, is that um, when John Sharon appeared, I remembered that name because a friend of mine, uh, she's a bit older than me, she watched it when she uh, watched Babylon 5 when she was little. Uh, and I remembered her telling me about the series, but not in a, in a way that I was like hooked and, oh, I have to watch this too because I was way too small then but i remembered this this name because i like the i i don't know that's uh, me and and some some words i don't know i have this weird connection and uh, that i sometimes memorize random words uh, and this is one of them uh so when he appeared i was like oh my gosh <laughs> i have a trouble back in time because yeah that popped up again um even though i had this rather funny, nice um, moment there. I was rather sad seeing um, Sinclair go, even though I was sometimes a bit harsh about the character. But um, yeah, well, what happened with Michael O'Hare was, uh, I don't know how to describe it, but I felt really sad about it because that's something I wouldn't wish for anyone. I, I think this very much reflects sort of uh, the reaction that everyone uh, sort of has with that. And uh, it's it's pretty well established that in general, the cast of, of Babylon 5 has gone through some, some rough times in terms of uh, many of them having died way too young. And Michael Harris is certainly the most tragic of, uh, of these examples. I mean, the easiest way to explain what happened is, I guess, uh, referring to the way JMS described it, where... During the shooting of season one, uh, it became apparent that uh, Michael Hare was having some sort of psychological issues uh, up to the point where it really bled over into paranoia and 
was a strain on the relationship that he could have with his colleagues because under stress he was just not able to function very well and was heading to a psychotic break. And the issue was if you have this uh, this condition and you go to the producers and say, hey, that's an issue, the show is basically going to be dead in water. And that was an added pressure that was put on top of Michael O'Hare where he was basically given the choice Either you seek treatment or you are responsible, at least in his mind, you are responsible for everybody here losing their jobs, which he felt he couldn't do. So what they did is work out a way for him to continue working on the show for this season, somehow get through it. He was assigned somebody who was helping him out with everything. They started taking care of, making sure he had the space that he needed, wasn't uh, put under the stress to somehow both let the season of the show finish, let the show continue, and also not jeopardize his career, because it could also very easily mean that this is the last show he ever had. And they did manage to work this out uh, alongside JMS, who also provided then financial aid and stuff beyond the scope of the show. And at least for a time, this also meant that Michael Hare could get the help that he needed, could get on medication and lead a life for... mm, a while longer, although sadly, eventually, um, due to also complications with this mental illness, he died fairly young. And at that point uh, was also the first chance that anybody got to talk about this openly because everybody agreed for as long as he was alive. They didn't want to make this the main issue to not jeopardize his career or also probably just let him live his life uh, on his own terms for so long. And it's it's just one of these examples where in, in retrospect you only can really fully understand what was happening. Like a big part of this is people who watched the show in the 90s didn't get any of this explanation. And uh, for me this is a, is a big part of this that everybody involved there was not only worried about getting help and, and dealing with, the, uh, w- with this issue, but also doing so in a way that was sort of forced to adhere to the 90s circumstances where that kind of uh, that kind of situation could have easily uh, killed the show, and that just as an added pressure on top of everything, yeah, this is pretty unimaginable. Though even um, he said, uh, Michael O'Hare told said, "Okay, um, tell the people what happened to me when I die," um, just to to yeah, open up the the. Um, awareness to to this mental problems, I think this is a really tough and brave thing to do because even though if you're dead, there are still a lot of people of your family and and everything, everyone else you leave behind that might have to handle certain problems with that. But still going that way is, yeah, I think it's really brave, especially in that time. Absolutely, and uh, the the dedication that is also behind that, not only, uh, well, having the bravery of going out with that, but also this awareness of how important it is. Uh, Like he mentions, if if we can show that this can happen to anybody, including the star of a TV show, that opens up uh, things in a way that maybe make it easier for future generations to deal with that. So definitely for for this business environment, uh, a a great step forward, and... I mean, this is also why I'm so glad that this has been continuously made uh, an issue that first people on conventions talked about, now people in podcasts talk about. It's it's part of Babylon 5 in a way of 
acknowledging these issues and uh, talking about them, just uh, raising that awareness. So which uh, means in terms of the show that this is the first and definitely not the only or the last major production-related issue that means the show has to move on in a very different way than was originally planned. Nobody plans for the main character to be swapped out after the first season, so um, you will already see that uh, this is not only a, a show that is praised for being well-written, but also for being very adaptable. And some of that we see here, because we get introduced to a new character. It's not a recasting. It's not uh, letting Sinclair die off-screen, which I'm also very appreciative of, that they decide, no, we somehow have to move the story forward, and we do so in a way that leaves also every opportunity open, maybe for Sinclair to come back, or for things to be written in a different way, and for a new character to take over this mantle. And I guess this will be also a big part of our first impressions that we are, as always, going to give. Yes. The first impression of this episode, well, I have to say I had to hold back to not watch directly the next episode because I feel that this episode has much more um, drive, much more energy than the previous ones. Um, but I think part of this um, different energy flow here is that we just have one storyline. Um, I mean, one could say that this this whole speech thing from, from Sheridan <laughs> is um, a subplot, but I don't feel it goes too much away from the main line, so I wouldn't consider it um, differently. So, yeah, we have just this one big plot here um, that... Yeah, gives you the feeling of, okay, you're finally there in this um, place on Babylon 5 and this universe and the people, uh, even though a lot is, yeah, messed up and differently. Um, but yeah, it's it's like it's finally starting. The big things are, are happening and we finally get a really big answer. <laughs> yes. Surprisingly, not at the end of the last season as the big resolution, but right at the beginning here. Um, it's it's an interesting choice, and I completely agree that this is a show where it starts, where things start getting into motion. And I think for me, this is in both because of two things mainly. For one, Sheridan as a character, I feel, is a lot less subdued uh, than Sinclair. He is somebody who is a lot more energetic and. Uh, moving moving things forward on his own accord and it's a very concise story like you say which also has the not so great side that we don't get any londo we don't get any jacar like we have much fewer characters involved in this plot but for that reason we can also like really spend a lot of time on it and move it forward well that was my first um impression on this episode what about yours is that that is mainly yours. I agree with the, with the newcomer. Where do I want to start over? Sorry. <laughs> what surprised you? Now oh, it's a mystery. No, um, I have to agree. We are now in a part of Babylon 5 that I still have watched more than once. Uh, so I thought I would remember better. But this time I was surprised how early on Sheridan actually changes the energy. And I get I also felt that the story was a lot more straightforward and that 
there was so much more um so much more yeah explosive moments in there and i think for me the interesting thing now is um and it's still interesting although i know what happens next and which character develops and which way it's still i still feel this catch that is i totally like this new energy i like how much more active sheridan deals with everything but i don't know if i can trust him because he was sent by earth i don't know how much he's on the side with the um pro earth movements i don't know where his stand is mm -hmm. I see that he's very good in his in his military tactics, that that's something he's very good at. But I don't know, can I put all of my trust in him without the situation concerning Earth that I've um, been introduced to in the last season? And that's very, very interesting, I think. And um, uh, yeah, so it really leaves, it really leaves this, this, this mixed feelings that are totally sparkling inside of me right now. I think I can only add to this mixed feelings because he's not only somebody sent from Earth Force, he's close to the elements of Earth Force that we've been very critical of. He speaks directly to the president. He was the first choice of the past president. So with both of these characters that we were very suspicious of, of like, man, they have like pro-Earth policies and stuff. Now here we have the guy who was sent there by them and you can understand why he's the guy who killed a whole bunch of Membari in this war like eked out a big victory and I mean he is very sympathetic I would say he is uh, very young dynamic smiling a lot he likes his oranges and he's very conscious also of the fact that maybe this is more trouble for Wildlord 5 than anything else but still, there is he, he's definitely somebody who approaches situations from a very different angle than Sinclair did and how well this is going to work. I don't know. I thought in, in with the end of season one, we had just learned that if Sinclair just sits down and does the diplomatic thing of, of uh, you know, looking through regulations, then he is very good in his position of Babylon 5. The problem was always when he jumped into his star fury and wanted to be the action hero, and why, when I look at Sheridan, he kind of strikes me more as another guy that is very much going to be an action hero rather than somebody who's going to pour over regulations. Yes, but you also see that he's kind of, that he's really good at it. I don't want to say that uh, Sinclair was bad, but you see that he has this, um, he definitely has an interesting angle and an interesting uh, calculations always going on in his head. But what I also found interesting, and I think that still counts as part of my first impression, is that on the one hand, you have him as this as this close to Earth and close to Earth force um, person, but then you also see that he definitely jumps into situations and has, for example, he constantly has in mind that uh, uh, or, or comes very fast to the conclusion that Elaine could be in danger and saves her. So that's definitely that this 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 um um. Just that he that he so fast jumps to that. Oh God, we have to take a look at her, although he has never seen her before, and um, has this view and this understanding of this is my crew and whoever it is that I protect. And then on the other hand, has the courage to really stand his ground and to really annoy this Membari person who is probably Grey Council. Um, um, and then in the end, you still see how you also see how he doubts his presence there. So I really feel like this episode constantly leaves us in the of. Of in, in with every situation you have to guess new of is he doing this well or not? What is he saying next? How are they reacting next? I think that's yeah, very, very well written because it leaves his position open a lot. You have a bit mixed feelings right now because you already dived in quite 
um, largely from from the um, whole who is Sheridan? How do I feel about him? <laughs> um, and yeah, I have a few things to say about him too, but I um, would put this off for later. So we have a bit more of a structured um, going through this episode. Um, otherwise, I think I would um, go on too many topics we had to discuss anyway. I think this episode makes it relatively easy for us. We have one big plot to follow. So let's try and do that a little bit. And then we can see if during that our opinions on Sheridan come through. But I... I can already tell you I will largely agree with what, what this one says. I, I think we are on a pretty similar wavelength there. Uh, but before Sheridan even arrives on the station, I think there is two big scenes that we can talk about. And the first one is Ivanovar in charge of Babylon 5. And it is one scene, and I absolutely love it. It channels everything that she is and everything that her character is into one like compact package. And it's absolutely amazing. Just also to illustrate the nightmare that is organizing a place like Babylon 5. So maybe let's start there. How did that serve as just a way to get back into Babylon 5? Um, yeah, to, to um, it, it felt a bit like a funny welcome um, gift because, yeah, Ivanova um, shouting at the, I, I don't know what, what they were, some some ambassadors maybe some labor uh, representatives guild members just whatever. everyone just everyone mixed together running behind her i mean you even understand a bit of what they're shouting one of them is complaining about a seating order like oh my god how old are you five <laughs> and yeah when when she she move she's moving uh, i think it felt a bit like the casino or at least something familiar and all of them flocking behind her and she's like you know, don't explode don't explode you can't kill all of them uh, and then the next scene when the elevator opens and the all of them who, who followed her are quiet and staying there and listening to her and she is moving out of the elevator and everyone is looking after her like i survived mm-hmm and then they remember who they are standing with and start arguing again. It's, it, it's, I love it. It's, it's a very good sequence. And I mean, it's, it's a funny welcome, but at the same time, I think it does serve a very important purpose of showcasing, okay, we have this guy that is supposed to be commander of Babylon 5. What does this mean? And it means delegating a whole lot of stuff. Like, if you don't, and Ivanova isn't really in a position to do that, you have to micromanage everything from foreign affairs to the seating order of the next council session. And it's just not going to work that way. So I, I think it just presents, this is what our new cap- captain is going to have to be able to do. And on the other side of the spectrum, we get like the wonderful introduction sequence of the Agamemnon, who is just done dealing with hijackers of sorts on the frontier. And I think it's it's just a nice illustration that this is a completely different beast that I cut you off. Yeah, before we go to the Agamemnon, what I really um, found interesting to see in this scene with, with Ivanova is that I don't think any of these would have tried this with Sinclair. No. Because he's, first, he's complete a different kind of type. He has a different kind of standing. Um, and from what he has done up until now, people 
respected him to a certain degree and didn't, yeah, try to piss him off. Though, um, and and I think they they misjudged in this scene on first, yeah, it's it maybe something like she's a woman and she is just lieutenant commander and she's not Sinclair and Sinclair is not here anymore, so I can try to get into the comfort zone of the other person. It's this on a personal level, and on top of that, also the fact Earth Alliance just lost its president. So there's going to be turmoil. You can take advantage of that. We talked at the end of the last season about how Jakar was very good in recognizing that this is a tragedy and respecting that. A week later, not everybody is going to do that. People are trying to take advantage of this. So it's a diplomatically good time to try and make requests for Earth. Then the main commander isn't there, so Ivanova has to deal with it. It's the perfect storm for them to really yeah, swarm her like vultures. And just to learn, you can't do this with Ivanova. Nope. They, a lot of people learned the lessons that we have slowly learned over the course of season one. Anything uh, you had on Ivanova here? No. That's just maybe. putting a, fla a little fan flag out for her. <laughs> yes. Uh, but yeah, then let's quickly move over to the Agamemnon, which uh, I, I already told you this, Micah. I, I love that somebody on the set building team decided to make like a little... Agamemnon uh, emblem to put at the back end of Sheridan's office for the one scene that we see it um, where he has been doing frontier duty which is just a nice element for me uh, to see that this is also something that Babylon 5 has like there are ships like the Enterprise just kind of cruising around on the frontier and dealing with daily problems which is an important job I'm sure and a big responsibility but completely different than leading Babylon 5 and for the first few minutes of the show, uh, this is what is really emphasized, and Sheridan himself comments on that, that everything from the oranges that can e he can eat now to, to his quarters, to his responsibilities, is going to be a big change for him. So it's not only me as the audience that has to adjust to this new captain, I also see that he, for him it's an adjustment too. And I always found that like a nice little parallel to open up. Yeah, well, I have to admit, I was more hooked up on the name uh, of this ship um, because um, Agamemnon, mostly known for his, um, yeah, participating in uh, the Trojan War or more likely indirectly um, inciting it through his uh, brother uh, Menelaus, who had his wife stolen from. Uh, one of the sons of Troy, though there is um, a bit of a mixed viewpoint. Some um, some texts are talking about, yeah, like that she went willingly with uh, Paris. Then are other versions where he stole her. And yeah, so whatever you prefer there. Um, the important part about Agamemnon is, though, or for me in this um, case, is not that he was victorious with the Trojan War, um, but that he is um, cursed because he is um, a descendant from Tantalus, with which was cursed from the gods because he stole, um, I think, ambrosia and nectar from them and it's like a few generations that were cursed. And the curse is one of violence and traitorship 
meaning that there is they are always connected to, to violence uh, outbursts and uh, that in each generation there is one person that turns against the family uh, which in Agamemnon's case is his own wife um, that kills him when he comes back home um, there's a lot more I could um, tell about him but that is the important part the, the traitorship and the the killing part and the violence part um, because that was the things I was a bit projecting um, to Sheridan and was wondering, okay, which of these things are relevant or will become relevant for him? Because, I mean, there has to be some reason you name this ship Agamemnon. Absolutely. I mean, okay, you can t can say he's he was a warrior and he won the Trojan War, but I'm, at least for me, that wouldn't be enough. We've already commented in season one on multiple times the ship names of vessels just arriving on Babylon 5 and such that they were usually some kind of a, a relevant reference to science fiction or so. So you can assume if they name the ship for the new commander of the station, something like that, that's going to have some relevance. And I think you're already on a pretty good track just keeping in mind these are elements uh, worth projecting on this character or at least at, at his background. Keep this in mind as we move forward. We will spend quite a lot of time with Sheridan, so who knows? Anything else on the earlier parts of the episode, or do we slowly move on to the ruminations on the Mbari side that are happening? I would, like to talk... oh. yeah. I would like to talk about the new intro. Oh, very much so. In between all the actual plot scenes, we get a new intro. Uh, I couldn't find out who was speaking this because I'm not really good with these kind of connections because I always have someone I can ask that immediately tells me. It's Sheridan. It's Sheridan's voice. Okay. I will. I mean, I kind of guessed it, but I wouldn't have heard it or wouldn't be able to decipher that. As a fair point, he will re-record this uh, voiceover. So in la later episodes of this season it might sound a little bit different maybe even a bit more like him yeah i would like to gather for a moment the kind of information that we get here i mean it's um he describes Babylon five as a place of trade diplomacy what else does he say just the things that you would expect but then he says it was the year the great war came upon us and he says this is the story of the last of the babylon stations was that in the first season the last yeah. of the Babylon stations. Yes, okay, so yeah. that's not me, okay, because I couldn't remember if Sinclair always said that as well. That, yeah, he talks about a great war. What else could be? I mean, the great war is definitely the more most important one. It's, uh, I, I mean, this, like the first season, which was titled uh, Science and Portents, this one is called The Coming of Shadows. So there's a definite sense that we are looking at this entire show from the kind of... Mm, historical mythological perspective like it's somebody talking to us about this important year as already established in history an important year and and we see that things are moving in a direction of things are going towards heightened stakes and that kind of thing yes i just found it interesting to mention that yeah there were new bits of information in there and that yeah 
um, I think at this point we don't really have a clue what kind of great war that would be. Also, uh, I always wonder what kind of war it had to be to be called great in such a sequence, because great always also has a positive, a partly positive I mean, we know the show likes to make reference to history in some way, so it's the space equivalent of World War One. and if it's anything like that, that's going to be terrible. <laughs> yes, but if it is meant that way, it's some question, and also who calls World War One great? I mean, I know who does, but who does that? No, no, it was called the Great War in World War One itself. Yes, but some sources still do, and that always bothers me. Yeah. Mm. That's what I meant. <laughs> but anyway... The interesting part is who is whom against whom in this case. That as well. And yeah, well, I have to still say I'm with still with the with the Reaper um, challenge here going for me because it feels so similar to I mean, Project Mass Effect. This entire episode is about preventing the Great War from being between Minbari and humans again. So. Let's hope they continue uh, successful in that. But it does kind of open up this conflict, right? Babylon 5 is this great place of making peace, and we watch this show tell us that the Great War is coming. So, Also, what would make this war interesting enough to be told? Like, why is the story surrounding around that? Because, um, I, I, um, I don't know, my, my basic idea would be it has to be something else. That was also when I watched it first, because I felt like if we had a new war between uh, a full-blown war between Narn and Centauri, it would kind of be a side story, more or less. That was my, my idea when I first watched it, I mean. And opening that up between humans and Umbari could be interesting, but I felt like it all was lacking a kind of spark. There had to be an extra connection, an extra thing to make this narration so noticeable. And I had no idea what it could be. The first time I watched it, I was really like, how the hell are you tie all of this together? And how? I mean, right now we are on like January something something in the season. So there is a lot of the year yet to come. Yeah. So who knows if the first inklings of that are already in there. The only thing fitting here is what uh, Lanier says later in the in the episode. More, it's, I think it's about towards the ending where he is kind of talking to uh, Dylan's uh, cocoon and saying something like yeah the the um like an enemy from the past um coming back and if humans and Mimbari don't fight together then everything is lost so now now it's a mix of the reapers and the like the last alliance of lord of the rings like elvish and <laughs> human people have to come together and defeat sauron once more so, so we can kind of see on like what level of mythologized stuff we're talking. I'm so burning for this one reference to something you just said that we will get eventually. Yeah, right. <laughs> you can't talk about it yet, but it's gonna be great. Um, but before we jump to the end of the episode yet again, uh, maybe let's uh, talk a little about because you already mentioned Lanier, what the Mimbari are up to in this episode because it's quite a lot. We see a lot of different Mimbari in this episode. We get a lot of visitors to the station. Really shocked to see the first Mimbari with a beard. Right? We yeah. didn't know they can. That do is that. shocking. I think they can only do that if they turn evil. <laughs> if they have run away from the whole world for too long, they get face hair. I swear. Yeah. Yeah. It's they get 
maybe this is the one hint to human souls that they had. <laughs> just started growing beers and they got really mad about it. Um, I don't like multiple things are happening for one. I'm very happy that Lanier gets a major role in this episode because he is basically tasked with doing what Dylan couldn't do seemingly at the end of Chrysalis, which is inform Sinclair about everything that has happened. Sinclair is also not there anymore, so, so he has to talk to Sheridan and such, um, revealing like the big mystery. And this in and of itself is very momentous because if we go back to the beginning of season one, Dylan was under orders to kill Sinclair if he ever got close to the truth. So the Membari know something that we don't. That's immediately established, and that's something means that things are changing for them. Some of them, like Lanier, are pushed in the direction of revealing the prophecy. It's probably also something that drives the ship in exile to take action. A great council member comes to the station, so the Mumbadi are busy. Yeah, I mean, do I know, or should I know what causes this change of kill him if he finds out to, hey, tell him? No, you shouldn't know that yet. No, but do I, I mean... After watching it all, I should know that. Eventually, you will learn what what causes this change. Yes. I would uh, I would feel like it's yeah the 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 action of of Dylan like it's the the prophecy is starting to roll. Oh, yeah. Therefore, it is necessary to tell a few things. Definitely, like and we already know that the Grey Council is not happy about this. They make this very clear here that she has started taking prophecy whatever that is into her own hands and forcing their hands somewhat but what do we think about this big reveal that we get from Lanier um I have to say that it's not what I was expecting and well I'm, I'm not sure I had something clearly uh and to to expect but it's a bit I don't know. It, it, it's a oh, moment I had there. Okay, yeah. Because yeah, this the the problem here is we have this this uh, our uh, the 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 souls of our great warriors go uh, went over to the human race and they are partly or completely reborn in humans. Mm. Um, and where we back at the a point we had earlier, I think it was in Soul Hunter, um, where the question came up, okay, what is the soul? What exactly do they mean by this? Uh, and yeah, since they, it is obviously for the Membari something they can, um, yeah, well, mm, they can verify, <laughs> yeah, verify, uh, yeah, what is it? <laughs> um, yeah, maybe it's the the term of soul that's too spiritual there for 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 my own um, point of view to feel comfortable about it. But mm, yeah, I I don't know. I I thought something bigger. It remains to be seen if we get a satisfying description at some point of what this soul thing is actually about. Um, but I agree, when I first watched it, I felt like this big reveal of of um, humans having Lombari souls was meant for a kind of big episode or even season final that we did not get to see anymore because of all the changes that were made. So I felt like this was kind of given to us now because the story was taking a whole other turn 
I really needed this information, but it felt was like, hmm, okay, so now I have this information and now what? Because I feel like it belonged to another story that was kind of crouched together here. Mm. That's an interesting, interesting way of looking at it from slightly this like meta perspective. For, for me, it's very much this realization of stopping this war because you have in a small circle of hooded people verified the sole status of humanity. That's a terrible reason to stop a war or to start a war or to uh, do anything like big political with it. And it looks to me like the Great Council knows this because they know if we tell our generals this, we are not going to be in power anymore because this is a terrible rationale to have. And, and like more than anything, like whether or not this uh, you believe in the soul stuff and what to make of all this mythology they spin around it and their prophecies, that's all fine and good for me as a human member of Earth Force. This will tell me, oh my God, the Membari are absolutely unpredictable. They will like start wars and end wars on some like weird spiritual reasoning that they themselves don't really understand or believe in. That's a terrible partner to have in any kind of international relationship. This is terrifying. They have very powerful ships and by all accounts, they are some weird group of like spiritual fanatics. This is horrible. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure if I would see it this way. Oh, um, okay. you know, if, if you think about the, the Mimbari, <laughs> just from the Mimbari side, yeah. they believe in this whole soul stuff. Sure. Yeah, it's like, it, it's, it's, for them, it's normal to, that they have this, this, uh, they are there. Yeah, the souls of, of the people dying that they will come back in some way. Mm. Um, but the point of, yeah, our souls are going somewhere else to a different race. I mean, this is something like, um, I'm not sure how to, how to say it. Um, it's, it's, it's hard to verify for a large group. Mm -hmm. It's it's not like it it feels like it's something where every Mimbari had to go there and to check it themselves, to see it for themselves, to believe it because it's such a big thing. Yeah. But it's still for for um if they would do this, it would work out for them. Uh on the other hand, you have the humans where it's yeah, it's it's such an abstract thing um in comparison Therefore, it's problematic in itself. I don't think there is um, a way to make you believe this on the same, even remotely same level as the Membari would. Because it's something, yeah, so abstract, so abnormal for the human race. And therefore, I don't think that there is any kind of... of circumstances where you would say oh yeah okay yeah that's why you stopped the war mm, I, I understand I completely agree but I don't think that would happen in any way so but also because we still don't know what they are talking about we don't know what they are measuring we don't know what they found out when they talked to Sinclair um so yeah I think it's hard to make a judgment on that right now but I find interesting, maybe, and that's maybe where we can take it to another level, probably interpreting the story for now, is that there was war and then Barry stopped killing us because they found that we share some 
thing, and they call that souls. And so we had this brutal war that almost defeated all of humanity, and it could be stopped because between two species that seemed so different, there was found a similarity. And that's kind of like a metaphor in this story as we have it so far that I found that I find kind of tempting. What I wanted to add when it's about the the perspective of the humans to this new information, uh, to this new information about uh, what stopped the war, um, I think even though maybe it, it is through the, the, the production circumstances that this information got there, but I also like the idea of that it's made, that it's put there on purpose because it's such a problematic thing. It's a rather easy explanation um, because it's, it's not something complicated um, in, 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 in that there are different things you have to consider just this this simple point they they realized um but because it's so abstract and distant you can't yeah you you can't get around of the uh, um around this so you just have to accept it but you're always yeah worry about it and you also somehow get what I'm trying to say about it. I, I think yeah, it's it sticks as this problem and it also doesn't resolve anything, which I think is is a very important aspect of this. You can go through the entirety of season one and feel like if only I fully understood where their disagreement came from and how it ended, I can make this war meaningful or maybe make the, the all the death that it brought more meaningful. And this is the kind of thing where you can learn about how this war ended and it will be an, an explanation, but it's not really going to make anything much better for it. Like nobody is going to be comforted by the fact that Earth was saved because of some alien prophecy. Like that's not that's not going to make things easier. And so as, as much as I also like to condemn the Grey Council for his weird for their weird shenanigans. I can completely see why they would keep this a secret. Like, how do you deal with that kind of reasoning? So, it, no, I, I think it's underwhelming in the insofar as it's not a very big uh, revelation that that you can work with. But as an in-universe reason, I think it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, but it's it's unsatisfying. Yeah. Get finally get the in information you wanted all along, and then you have it and. You don't have this this feeling. Of, ah, now I know it. Yeah. But oh, really? That's it. Uh, and I think this is right, rather realis realistic there, because mm. I mean, if you, I, I don't want to th uh, think about big things, but like if if you're a child, like oh, I want to know what's in this, um, in in this um a box. I I don't. Uh, I'm not allowed to open or whatever. And then you open it, and oh yeah, uh, papers. Hmm. And you were, I don't know, expecting Narnia or something like that. Yeah. And this this kind of feeling here um, fits in there perfectly, for me at least. I think for me it's part this, part also this thing that things only make sense in context. This is a great explanation, but like Leila already alluded to, as long as we don't know exactly what the Membadi were measuring and doing, what they understand as a soul, 
it's also kind of a non-explanation. They give me a bunch of words, but what this concretely means, they still don't really explain to me. So I'm just left here and, and like I said, putting a whole lot of faith into them that what they are telling me has some kind of basis in reality. I have to make that assumption because otherwise I'm really just interacting with lunatics. But it's it's also still going to leave me uneasy about this because it doesn't really yeah, help me make future decisions very informed. On the other hand, I think, um, and I, it felt for a moment like it's it's a fake answer or just a half answer. Maybe there is more to it, but it also is real enough, um, or at least I would think it's real enough through Veneer's actions or reactions when he is telling this story. So he uh, believes in what he is telling. I think, yes, it's it's also kind of on this level of, yeah, I believe them because nobody would make up this crazy story as an excuse to disguise something worse. Like, this is... <laughs> I have to believe that they are completely serious about this because otherwise they are terrible at their job. I mean, it leaves us with this question of what do Membari understand for soul? Like, what is a soul? What, do, what did they find? And... Uh, um, when we go back to the uh, yeah reading that I've always had on this part of the story, um, it's interesting to to question what is the similarity that they found? Why did they find a piece of themselves that they were missing, that they were lacking, that they need? Why could they find that in a human? What is that? What could this connection be that that does not give them this this understanding of stopping genocide because it's genocide? But stopping as a historical event this one genocide, stopping that and making all that is happening now possible, what could that have been? And we so far we don't know, but that was always something that had definitely caught my attention um, because this view on the story, um, as I had now, as I had uh, said that from my outside point of view, always really had my, my full uh, 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 attention interest at this point. We but question, uh, do we know that they uh, would have done a genocide or would they, I mean, is it stated somewhere? Because I mean, I mean, didn't it, did, did Len says the final assault on the whole world, we don't know for sure if that would have meant wiping out everyone and everything. I mean, it's, it's, uh, you are right to question that. Uh, it, it depends a little bit on, you know, what you're listening to, right? Um, and, and I would assume the answer is somewhere in the middle. You have definitely people that say the Mumbai were going to just bombard the planet and humanity would have died out completely. You have home guards saying the Mumbai would have assaulted Earth and been repelled heroically and then humanity would have conquered the galaxy. And the reality is probably somewhere in between where it would have been something to the degree that humanity probably wouldn't have been any major power anymore. It probably would have wiped out millions of people to the point where it might technically not qualify as genocide, but we are definitely going to wipe out some cultures and peoples in the in the context. So. And probably bomb us back into the Stone Age. That is definitely possible. I think bomb Earth and back that everyone dies is also kind of technical, from a technological level, kind of impossible. And we also all agree that we would survive a nuclear war in the one or the other form, so... Yeah, and it's still something we kind of want to prevent, so... Yeah. 
uh, yeah, it's it's kind of maybe maybe the Membari uh, would have come over with their version of a Death uh, Star. So it's completely possible. Uh, yeah, so it's it's definitely it's it's good that you point out this is an open question because of that will also very much inform uh, how you treat this, how 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 you how your relationship with the Membari is. Also, we see that. Uh, but it's definitely in the Babylon 5 universe itself an open question. Nobody kind of knows that. And if you ask anybody about it, they're probably also not going to give you an honest answer because, you know, who would like to admit to this kind of stuff? Uh, but but we talked a lot now about sort of the um, issues of reconciling and dealing with the answer that Linear gives us. Of course, the show also makes a big point of telling us there are many people that just don't do that. Uh, the president and Sheridan themselves say they don't really believe in the whole soul kind of thing, so they have to reconcile that. And we have people on the Membari side of the Tragati who straight up just will not accept this as an uh, as an order and probably wouldn't accept this as a solution either. Um, so how do we stand to this entire side of the story? The ship that refused to end the war and now tried desperately to ignite this war again. Um, the the problem um, uh, I see there is on, on the one hand, they have this, this warrior cast, um, which is a really big thing in, in uh, their yeah culture and everything. Mm. Um, but what is a warrior without a war? Yeah. So they they kind of have no longer a purpose, and I I I mean of course yes there are there are a lot of uh, things like <clears throat> I don't know uh, with, with the recent events here in Germany like uh, helping uh, the to to um, hold back the the floods and everything, but. Um, I don't feel like seeing seeing the Mimbari putting some sandbags on uh, top of each other or, I don't know, helping some people after an earthquake or stuff like that. I don't know. Um, the question is if the military of the Mimbari would be used for this kind of stuff. Like here, you can also become a policeman if you are tired of being a soldier at some point. The question is how does that work in Mimbari society? I, I think we yeah. can kind of... Uh, split this even into two separate questions. The one is, what is a military without a war? Which I think you can definitely make arguments there. So it's it's one question to talk about the organization as a whole. A different, much more difficult question is, what is the individual warrior without that war? And we already talked in season one about the fact that by having the warrior cast as this all-encompassing part of uh, Membari society, a warrior never stops being a warrior, and that's a problem because then you can have people like the Tragati stuck in a war that has ended and no way out of that. And that, I think, becomes a huge problem if you don't provide a way for people to come out of a war and reintegrate into a kind of civilian society, whatever that looks like. And um, on the on the other hand, we have um, that this this what was it a friend or there were there were this this guy uh, introduced that where was a from the religious caste that yeah. went over to the warrior caste and i wouldn't be surprised if there were more cases like this in this i mean this, it's called the holy war 
yes. in, in some point. Therefore, it means you have more warrior, more people in the warrior cast. And then, yeah, what do you do with so many warriors? So, And on top of that, we are dealing with a ship full of warriors who are not only cut off from the rest of society because they are part of the warrior cast, they are also abandoned by their leader, which, which is a really bad thing if you get orders that you go to agree on and your solution to this is I'm just going to kill myself and the rest of my crew is just going to kind of have to deal with that, uh, which, uh, you know, who knows what else this war leader uh, of the Tragati did, but that's definitely not a winning move right there uh, in terms of like ensuring the safety of his own mm. troops, like even in the context of being a warrior, that's terrible, a terrible decision to make. And I, I think this isolates them also from the rest of the warrior cast. They have been abandoned by virtually everyone that was responsible for them. Yes, but also we see that in the end, the Membari only try to disable the ship, try to trap them there to get them home and mourn them and recognize them as a hero to a lot of their people. So the comments of the Membari whole world on these rogue uh on this rogue crew is not entirely judgmental or negative. Yes, although I wonder, um, and, and once again, this is me pointing out a very American issue here again, but I, uh, I, I think this is something that is very recognizable, especially nowadays, where you know you have a culture that will always talk about the troops and veterans being the heroes, but at the same time, not being able to pull through like a proper reintegration program or financial aid for them. So I think this contradiction can definitely exist in a society that will always talk about these people being heroes and them being terribly mourned and such, but at the same time being very, very bad of actually helping them when it comes to coming out of the war and dealing with that. And A, it kind of felt like this is what the Mimbari were also doing here. The Mimbari cruiser comes out and only disables them, but really doesn't have any kind of plan beyond that. I would figure... If anybody should have anticipated the Tragati destroying themselves there, it should have been the other Membari of the warrior cast, right? Yeah, um, maybe this is just my pessimistic self, but I would not be surprised if um, this this whole story would be covered up for whole, for the home world. Mm. That they like I don't know they they tell some some nice story of, oh, yeah, we, we finally found the missing ship. They were all dead because, or they, they killed themselves uh, ages ago. Um, stuff like that. Just don't tell them the real story. Because maybe it's just me expecting this after all the things we don't get told about them. Um, so I can totally see something like, yeah. I mean, we already saw there was the body of a great war leader and the religious caste decided to cremate him because that were his wishes. But what the Membari heard was he was mystically transcended and his body disappeared mysteriously and spiritually. We have precedent for that kind of thing. So I would assume exactly the same thing happens here where they s decide for themselves what is a heroic story to tell about these people that they just kind of disappear from the world stage and then running with that. I mean, you can put it that way. The Membari always have a very nice phrasing for whatever actually happened. Hmm. Which, I mean, also... I would call that delusional, but okay. <laughs> but, I mean, it also means that Sheridan and such uh, 
should pay much attention to how the body function here because ultimately if they want to make sense of this whole Mimbari soul talk that they are hearing, it essentially will lie in decoding what are the Mimbari kind of in a very flowery language saying here. If we break it down into more practical terms, what are they talking about here and then hoping that that will make some sort of sense. Anything else on the Mimbari because we, we didn't look at everything, anything else <laughs> so far. I mean, I am a big fan, even though I find their entire, like, we kind of just now established the Tragati is, for me at least, a tragedy more than anything else. I don't really blame them for anything that they do in this episode, because they have been legitimately abandoned by everyone for the past 12 years, and that they have not gone completely insane stuck on that ship is a big big tribute to them i i wouldn't expect anything better from a crew like this and i would say it's the responsibility of the membari to take care of that ship much much earlier before it can even come to a situation like this and kind of in line with that i'm a big fan of the portrayal uh of of both their leader that comes to the station and then the commander of the ship itself during the almost space battle of them like trying to provoke this conflict uh, without doing so and basically making this a, a whole lot of testing your nerves on Sheridan's and the Babylon 5 crew's part of just like we have to react to this threat in a reasonable manner but at the same time we have to just show the discipline and the calmness to not take the bait to not take the first shot because otherwise this will escalate immediately I have to bitch about the commander of the ship though mm. Because, I mean, he is like taking this this fake tooth out of his mouth and, oh yeah, there's some poison in it. Really? You don't, couldn't come up with anything else for an alien. Could have taken it out of his head. Yeah, well, for fun. Like, <laughs> yeah, a... like, I don't know, anything else would be interesting. But like, yeah, oh. It's also taking the fake tooth out and then like breaking it up seems to defeat the entire purpose of being able to do it like with a thing in your mouth so i don't i don't know how yeah i feel like they were just looking at the special effects for poisoning they could do and they were like i have a really good fake tooth that i want to show off the camera <laughs> and then they did that um it's it's yeah. not the most mimbari way of doing it no yeah but that's that's all i have to uh, yeah in just the 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 space scene here uh, you already mentioned that Sinclair shows off being kind of a smart guy in this episode and him recognizing, oh, we should not be able to uh, like track these fighters uh, is a really nice way of showcasing. He has a lot of awareness of, of what's going on, what he should expect from this enemy, and uh, yeah, then just the nerves of steel to actually deal with that. So I, w I was kind of happy to see that. Why did Earth in 10 years not update that? Because they're absolute cheapsakes when it comes to Babylon 5. That has been established. Babylon 5 was sent online without enough fighter uh, craft on their, uh, to their name. We saw this in season 1 when after like a year and a half they are like, oh, the president gifted us a new squadron of Star Furies. And Ivanova was like, oh great, the ones that we should have had the entire time. Babylon 5 is just horribly underfunded and probably the last one to receive. Also, if you rem uh, remember... 
the Bundeswehr bought like whole new radios for the entire <laughs> roster of our vehicles and then found out retrospect, oh, we can't actually install them, they're not compatible. So probably something like that happened with Babylon 5 as well. In a warehouse somewhere on Earth, there's tracking systems that deal with Mimbari with no problem. They're just not compatible with the station, so you kind of have to sit around there. Stuff like that I will always explain with terrible military bureaucracy. But Earth has developed better tracking. Be Earth has developed better tracking system, you mean? Um, I would imagine they have developed better tracking systems, but also never had a chance to properly test this. So this is why we have people like HomeGuard saying, oh, if we fought the war now, things would look very different. And then you have people like Sinclair saying, I mean, maybe we are better now, but they are still outmatching us 100 to 1. So that's not going to make much of a difference. I, I think it's kind of this situation where as long as the war doesn't actually break out, there's going to, people, going to be people that give you a lot of analysis why the war swings that way or that, and in practice it always looks different. But I think especially this, this scene and, and how Sheridan um, reacts to it shows his different energy. Yeah. Because it's 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 a different kind of, of awareness he's showing there, his experience as the star killer, as the Mimbari call him. Um and also that yeah, the this 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 he I think he's has some kind of an open side. Mm -hmm. Like when he's dealing with uh Lanier and, and uh, how it's showcased, I think that's rather open. Um, away he's taking there on the other side he is um always like on the um on 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 the yeah careful side like when he realizes oh this this Mimbari dude he has to be one of the great council otherwise he wouldn't have this kind of information um and also how he's reacting to the uh, commander of the ship um I, th I think this is also shows that there are some similar uh, similarities between him and Sinclair, but still a completely different energy. Yeah, I would agree with that. And maybe this is even a, a question that we would like to pose to our lurkers, how they would imagine uh, this entire episode would have played out if Sinclair was in charge. Personally, I feel like Sinclair wouldn't have had uh, the guy from the Tragati in the cell as quickly. I feel like he would have been more adamant in talking to the guy and trying to talk this through, so maybe the guy wouldn't have had a chance to kill himself as quickly with a poison tooth, and that might have been a, a different avenue to go. I'm, I'm sure Sinclair would have found a way to navigate this entire situation in some way, but I'm also sure it would have look, looked very differently than... Um, what we would have seen. It probably also would have involved him sitting in one of the Star Furies uh, facing down the Mimbari cruiser. I'm, yeah, I, I just kind I of have to imagine you. that. <laughs> Me sitting with my baseball bat here, what are you doing again? <laughs> yes. um. I think when it comes to the main plot line, we... Uh, we kind of went through this very unstructured, but I think we hit on every point at some uh, at some uh, corner here. Um, so I think this is uh, the best opportunity for us to talk about all the little tidbits in between, including the B-plot that we learn about Sheridan here. And there is a lot 
stuff happening there, so whatever comes to mind first, uh, I invite everyone to bring up. Well, I would go directly to his little good luck speech. Mm. Um, I mean, we, we just get a few parts um, of it. Um, but I, I really like the, the beginning where CLC was still uh, staffed, mm -hmm. um, where he was talking about his, uh, yeah, his, his meeting with the Dalai Lama, uh, I think was it, um, where there was something about uh, in the lines of, um, do you understand? No, I don't understand. And this in this direction, which is, yeah, a direct reference to what was originally said by Socrates. I understand that I don't understand. Yeah. And therefore it's, it's like the, the, um, the realization of my knowledge, my wisdom, my intellect, whatever you want to call it has limits. It will always have limits. There are a lot of things I will, I don't know about and probably never will know about or understand, which is, um, a really good philosophy for life because it gives you, um, a lot of respect to, uh, to others. Um, and on the other hand, I think this is like the essence of what the universe is like. Especially in space, I think it's more, well, it, you feel this more because there's a lot of things y you actually don't even see. And this unknown is, is reflected in this. What you don't see, you can't recognize. And um, I think this fits here quite well. I think it's completely right. And it also shows the way that he then sort of projects this humble, I don't know all the things, I, I just start to learn what I don't understand uh, onto Babylon 5 itself. So it brings it down also to be very humble in, in recognizing I've read the reports and honestly half of them don't make any sense to me. Crazy stuff happens here and uh, you have an ambassador in a cocoon, like what am I going to say about that? So it immediately like puts him in a very humble position and at the same time he also like gears up to really praise the crew here and their competence so he seems very good at showcasing like i'm the new guy here i will rely on you and i will seek to make this a a crew a team that really works together and uh continue what i was left with so those all seem like pretty good hallmarks for um for a commander to have i also think it's very clever that they use this introduction speech here to tell us a lot about sheridan's background which once again is very different from sinclair sinclair was somebody who came from mars who had a background in this colony that is kind of the outcast of Earth Alliance now. And here we have Sinclair, who is a poster child, the, the child Sorry. of... Uh, yeah. Here we have Sheridan, uh, a poster child of a diplomatic envoy who was spending time with the Dalai Lama. So somebody who is like in the higher circles of Earth Alliance, I would assume, uh, and, and is in a much more prestigious position here. And he will have to use different ways of utilizing that. But also through this speech, and especially since he can't finish it, um, and he, I mean, he does so later, mm. he's saying like, I, I do this usually in the first 24 hours when I take over a new command. Um, and since he doesn't have much time left, he's doing it in an empty CNC. Yes. Um, 
I think this, I, it looks obviously totally comically, but also um, it makes him sympathetic. Yeah. Because he, he has this little, well, let's say quirk or yeah, different kind of, of behavior that um, makes him more human because so far we have this nice guy obviously since he's how he's handling uh the the contact with ivanova she which knows him and are kind of friendly friends like with with each other um but yeah this is his his non uh straight um way of of, of being and i really think this is a good way of introducing a new character especially in this kind of position and it's very important because season one spent a lot of time humanizing Sinclair in small ways. Now we have a brand new character. We kind of have to rush through this again. And yeah, like you say, he has weird quirks and it tells us he's kind of superstitious. Not in a serious way that he's going to fire people according to their star sign. But he, he really wants to finish this uh, speech. And once he does, he's very proud of himself. And he... You know, juggles his little orange, which he's also very persistent about, which is also just a weird fixation to have in space. And he's excited about having a normal shower and not having to use sonic showers again. Just this, all of these elements that uh, tell us he's not just a guy in a shining uniform, but also just a normal human being who has like weird specific preferences and little quirks that he kind of has to adhere to. So I'm not sure if I would call the the orange um, weird because I kind of feel this if I had the the perspective of not eating something like that for for ages. Okay, maybe for, for me it wouldn't be an orange. Maybe more like I don't know an apple, a peach, or something like that. But I could totally understand that if I weren't able to eat this for I don't know years. I think he was talking about. Yeah. So. Yeah, I, I'm with him there, I think. I would say at the point where he brings one into the CNC, where I'm pretty sure food is not allowed, it starts becoming weird. But okay, maybe that's just me. Um, anything more on Sheridan that we want to talk about? No, I think my first impression already had everything yeah. I wanted to say was pretty complex. Yeah, I, I, I wanted to say th something about, since you were so mixed about, do I trust him, do, uh, do I not trust him? Um, I would go a bit more to the I trust him part because of, um, yeah, the way he handles everything and his connection to Ivanova. And, of course, that the late president... Um, wanted to put him there and not the the actual one. Um, so he had a bit more points there uh, for me. In the case, the only the the only thing or two things that make me skeptical um, of him are, yeah, the the name of the ship he's coming from, and um, there was something the. I'm not sure which one he was talking to uh, when he got the order at the Agamemnon to the general. The, was it was it a general? Yeah. Um, he was like, yeah, and there's something else I have to tell you, and then cut. Mm. Uh, so yeah, that's that's the the parts I'm skeptical. Um, 
Yeah. I thought it, especially this point that the um, old president wanted to have him in place um, as a second option could have also just been another way of that president to um, uh, find his right way between uh, being pro-alien and being pro-Earth. So that agreeing to share it would have just been another one of his steps to also get out of these pro-Earth movements under his reign. So uh, that was actually a point that made me even more skeptical in the first place. No. But yeah, it's definitely um, if you're on how you see it. Uh, now that I think about it, I found it interesting that he mentioned his the, the name of his ship so often. Um, um, we will definitely come. I think we will have to to keep that in mind and at some point come back to that definitely because I think there will be layers to explore. Maybe we talk very briefly about uh, the the other new addition to our cast. I don't know if you noticed him in the in the opening credits, but we have a pilot now. Yes, I mean they ha always had pilots, but this one has a name. <laughs> yes. Um, I think this uh, I thought this rather interesting. Um, because it felt a bit like they were trying to to split up Sinclair, uh, or or his role he filled up so far, uh, which is why I hope that um, Sheridan won't jump as quickly into uh, a fighter or an, a spaceship in, in any regard and, and head out, uh, that it will be the dude's job for now. I mean, I can, I, I don't think I've ever heard this interpretation before, but I really like it, splitting Sher uh, Sinclair kind of into the commander part and the hero, I want to I wanna be on the frontline part. Let's see if this pilot will also start like going into gunfights in down below. Then, then I might get more skeptical. But for now, it's definitely yeah, it's a good option for us to have somebody in a Star Fury in the middle of the action without having to send one of the very important like main officers of the station. So, not a not a terrible move on that front. Clear and that. Okay, no, no more thing on chat. I mean, we are going to spend time with Sheridan for the rest of the season, so. We can definitely bring stuff like that up later on. And anything on Warren Keffel from your end? The pilot? No. He has a holographic girlfriend. That's that's something. We didn't know that they have holograms like that before. Other than that, it's it's kind of, yeah. Yeah, it's a rather brief uh, meeting with him. So we'll I mean, have to see who he is, how he is. That's true. I mean, as a, as a small, like, just world-building quirk on my end, I kind of like that we now get the confirmation that between coming through the star, uh, through the jump gate and going to the station, there is actually a considerable amount of time where there's enough time to scramble fighters and stuff. So far, they've always just kind of cut back and forth and made this uh, seem very, very short. Um, but okay, I think for the main part of this episode, this does it for us. Tapestry. Well, the tapestry in this episode, in this season, is going to take a slightly different shape where we are going to reinstate the sort of table that we had in our gala as well. And uh, every time we are just going to aim for like one or two bullet points that we want, want to bring, well, that we want to bring down on main events that we feel like might carry forward. And then as the show progresses, Hopefully this will spread up into different threads of the tapestry that are either different plot lines or different um, developments. 
And one of these developments is definitely going to be the character of Sheridan that we get to know here. And basically, I, I think we can all agree everything that we learn about Sheridan here is probably going to carry forward and is probably going to be um, refined as the show goes on. And I think for this first episode, the main question I have for both of you is what are things about Sheridan that you feel like should be explored relatively quickly in the first few episodes. Now, what do we need to know about this character so that he can properly fill the shoes of, of Sinclair? I think I rather need to see how loyal to Earth he is. So mm -hmm. there are questionable decisions from Earth or changes in the political structure in Earth, within Earth for, that affect uh, Things like funding or whatever, any decision that Babylon 5 as a place relies on, I really want to see where his loyalties are. Is he really into the mission as Sinclair is his? Does he have his own his own idea about the mission, um, his own um, understanding of the importance of a place like Babylon 5, or is he just uh, working for Earth? I can see that as a very big question. Um, I think I just find interesting to see um, how he will react or interact with with the ambassadors um, I mean okay Jakar is a um, MIA um, but yeah well his his interactions with Lando or with Dylan I mean we already have at the as the I think it's the last uh, picture we have on this episode where the cocoon is getting propped from the inside yeah. so uh, I'm sure she's there back in the next episode um, which will be also interesting to see what, what changed and yeah uh, and, and, and of course yeah all the the usual trouble and bullshit that's happening on B5 how Sheridan handles that um Maybe he gets his own interactions with the um, crop corn alien. <laughs> that would be how he resolves that conflict. I hope both of you will remind me once uh, Dylan comes out of the cocoon, we should talk about the transformation, what the original plans for the transformation were and what we actually got, because that's an interesting topic all on its own as well. Um, and that's probably going to come up relatively soon. Like you said, the cocoon is already getting prodded and kind of oozing weird goo so something is happening there um, as for Sheridan um, I'm most curious to see how he handles diplomacy not in the sense of I have just met this alien species and I want to resolve this first meeting without shooting at each other that's the stuff that he's already done I want to see him in the 12th meeting trying to re renegotiate the Euphrates sector for the 17th time in this like really standstill diplomatic political mess and mud fight that uh, people like Jakar and Londo get into because that's a completely different kind of interaction that I don't know he has any experience with and how he handles this kind of stuff I'm really curious because I feel like his kind of tactical gung-ho approach that he's portrayed here might not be ideal for that so we will see the last question, or the, the, the next big question when it comes to long-term plot threads, um, is what is going to happen with the Membari now? Like, now that we have the 
big reveal had and the Tragati, the last ditch effort of the warrior cast to reinstate this war, it kind of leaves us with what now? Any ideas of what the Membari might be up to, what Delenn might be up to? Uh, is this even something that you think will play a big role in the coming season or with season one and Sinclair gone, this is going to kind of take a backseat and we focus on something different now? Um, I'm I'm on my part. I'm certain that's going to be a big thing because, I mean, something obviously has changed with Delenn and it will have an effect. And I don't think this is going to be something something small um, considering how much um, of a thing the, the Great Council is making out of this. And also the... the um, yeah, the, this whole prophecy thing is connected to Dylan's um, cocoon trip. So, yeah, it has to be big. Otherwise, I don't know why everyone blew this up so big. Um, yeah. it, it would uh, also dimmen the expectation that were um, soon so far. And, uh, yeah, that that would be horrible writing then. So, and I don't expect this. So you have great faith in the show. I'm very happy to yes. see that. Oh, great faith in us telling you that you should have that faith. How about you, Leila? I can't say anything to that because I have already completely in mind what is going to happen next. Okay, so you're no fun of speculating. No, I, I, just can't, I just can't because I constantly make the connection to an episode I'm desperately waiting to watch. Uh, <laughs> well, now you will have to be as patient as Mike and it's going to be painful. It's going to be beautiful. In this case, I think for the tapestry and notes that will suffice, they will get more complicated as the show gets more complicated. But for now, we can start with a wholly new introduced segment that we already teased a little bit in our gala, which is going to be the postbox segment, where we will pick and choose a handful of comments or even just elements of comments to kind of post to all of us because whenever we respond in writing, it's really only one of us who responds and we are kind of, you know, restricted to that. Here we will have a forum where we can actually talk about these things a little bit. And there was one question in particular that I really wanted to pose to you all. Uh, I will have to look up very briefly who asked it. Um, yes, it was a longtime commenter at FSM Dog who asked on our gala session, we talk so much about this being a fairly American show. Uh, but if this was a European show of some kind, how would it be different? Which I found a fascinating question. Um, I'd already speculated on it a little bit. Now, of course, calling it a European show is already pretty broad. You can go into further detail. If this was a German production or a French production or a British sci-fi production, how would you imagine this show looking? I was just thinking of other like big sci-fi productions from Europe that could be compared yes but that is like that is, that is like a, a one week monster fairy tale in space that's so different yeah and when i think of french things i, I think of comedy and sex i mean that could work <laughs> with the car i can yeah <laughs> london would chime in there too absolutely um, i think it would become a lot more absurd and a lot more character driven and a lot less actively political, probably. 
the the question is are we talking about made in the 90s or made now whatever because, you want yeah because um I, i know that there was not in the 90s way before um my my dad has this uh dvd box of uh, a german I, i think he he once said the german answer to star trek or or, or no no star trek um yeah star wars? star wars maybe no it's more, more star trek All right. like um uh, it was it's called raumpatrouille orion i never watched That's it i just classic. looked at the looked at the cover and um yeah well it it, it didn't feel right to me <laughs> so I, i don't i think in the in the 90s it would be would have been more of a trash show um because i can't imagine that something like that would be funded correctly or or in a way that it would be done uh, could have been done nicely because yeah funding in in germany for german productions is rather tough uh since the most if if there is funding uh then it's mostly to um funny things but overall more that go into like the educational section um historical stuff like that so i can't really see that in the 90s today i could imagine it possible um though i think you have to be equipped rather well with with a good storyline with the good writing i mean even even if you have don't have that much of a budget you can make something good even though it would look a bit trashy if you have a good writing if you have good characters a good story and good actors um that will balance it out i think I will have to very briefly barge in there just so that nobody gets an aneurysm. Round Patrouille Rian is a real classic, but it's from the 60s. So if it looked trashy yeah. in the 90s, that might be part of it. Uh, but what you wanted to say. Yeah, no, I was just thinking that nowadays, of course, if we think of maybe in the past 10 years, that could have probably been a European production if it was like a Netflix production. There, I'd like to think of Dark. I mean, that of course worked out because they had a profit and they also had like certain guidelines because Netflix knew, knows how to make shows that kind of work in their way. Um, but without that, I would have as a German production. I, I honestly think I cannot imagine. I mean, my mind also went mostly to more recent productions. And if we look to Germany, for me, the closest equivalency is just Babylon Berlin and not just because of the name, um, but because it has like in part similar themes and this this like setup of a big sort of historical or I could also mention you know science fiction historical drama um, and and I feel like from that it would have been a different show and so far I feel like family dynamics and drama and intergenerational drama would have played a much much bigger role so I feel like we might even see a show that takes place a across a much longer time frame exploring really the different phases that we see And I could imagine that being 
interesting, but I also feel like it would have become quickly very experimental and less accessible. And what I also always have to, what I always say, what's never missing in German films or German shows is that everything is always fucking serious. I don't know, people always really like to scream and throw things and smash things and it's always, everything is always explosive and has a very cold feeling to everything. Like to the way people speak and behave. Even in shows I like, I have that, that when I switch from more international productions to a German production, I'm like, why is everything so cold? Why is everyone always exploding? It's it kind of lost, maybe. Depends, I think, what kind of show it is. Because if I think of, of all the productions of uh, uh, here with, with uh, Elias and Barak, uh, um, yeah, <laughs> I still love you. I sometimes even have it in there. Like, what did I once watch? Turkish for Anfänger. And there also was like, this is supposed to be a comedy, but, but they are they are screaming in this German way. I don't know. Just very affected by the German language in and of itself. Yeah. Maybe. maybe. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not sure if I know enough about other countries and how they produce their shows and movies. The, the only... Where I ca would consider it to be something good would be from from the British, um, because they have good funding for uh, a lot of, of of their movies or shows, um, and therefore could be successful. I don't, I can't remember if I when I if I ever watched something from the from the Netherlands or or. I don't know. There, there are so many countries, but I can't put my finger on it. This was a production from this, and I, I don't know. Maybe Scandinavian would be worth a look, at least for their their crime stuff is sometimes very good. Yeah. Okay. That's and and the, they have always a good feeling for scenery. Yeah. Um. Uh, it's a series from these northern regions. It's Norway. Okay. Okay, then I start. At least I hope it's set in Norway, so I would be very... <laughs> if it's a Swedish show. Uh, I think it's a... Yeah, I think it's a... It's a... Nor uh, production from, from Norway. Uh, this in, in, uh, on, on Netflix, the series Ragnarok. Which... It's really... The CGI looks good. The, the characters are well, well written. Their feeling for, for the scenery is, is working really well. Um, yeah, maybe maybe that would be uh, also an option, but I think it's also a Netflix production. Yes, there we are, Netflix collections again. What? So maybe, yeah, like Netflix, Amazon. I also uh, have to say with Norwegian or just Scandinavian productions, I have a very hard time imagining those without the sweeping nature vistas. I don't know how I would imagine a show that takes place primarily on the station, like a very expansive Zen garden set, maybe. <laughs> uh, well, no, it, that will be interesting to see. It would have been a very different mood. Yeah, I think it's it's just difficult to imagine because science fiction is just a genre that is not so often um, done, especially when it goes into a space opera. I mean, you have like sci-fi fantasy elements in a few TVs and shows, but I guess this kind of thing really is not done so often, so it's difficult to imagine that. And yes, actually, this strong space station theme, um, yeah, because it's so, so differently 
I have to say, uh, and this is kind of stretching European show a little bit, but um, if we go into the whole like Eastern European Soviet sector of science fiction or nowadays Russian sector of science fiction, there are a handful of productions that I think of in terms of having a similar style and scope of Babylon 5 that I could imagine very interestingly, but it would also have a very different spin on a lot of the topics that are in the show. So that would be fascinating to watch, but also a completely different show. Yeah, but maybe also to, 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 to mention a few other things, because now we've always talked about production value and about more general things, but... I guess we very often pointed out how American the show was when there were questions of of uh, social security, of social work, and um, yeah, I guess maybe if 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 the show was written or produced by uh, in a more European way, you would have probably. Um, or it's it's a question like, would do you think we, it would have been written differently? Would there be more of a support net on Babylon 5? Would we have this brown sector with homeless people with children that get stranded or would we have written that not completely away because of course also here we have the problem but would there be more mechanisms that we I mean this might be just my subjective perspective on European shows that I usually see but I feel like things would feel more universal where it would feel less tailored specifically to this is a metaphor for the American medical sector and more here is a more broader fundamental concept that we are dealing with and I feel this is if I think of something like Ragnarok which deals with environmentalism to some degree in, uh, always it feels much more here's an issue that civilization has that we have to deal with and less this is a Norwegian issue and specifically there even though you can tell at several points how these things, specific structures, are specific to Norway, but it's it's there less less of a narrow constriction. I would feel like. Yeah, I would I would also agree on that. All right. So we spent now probably like fifteen minutes talking about one comment. This is going great. I can see this segment quickly stirring out of control. Uh, <laughs> So we obviously will not get to every single character and uh, definitely not um, to uh, every comment in full length. But one or two more I would like to bring in that will probably be easier to discuss because they ask less all-encompassing questions like reimagine this show in a different production country. Um, one of our, I think... Uh, longest commenting members both in he has been commenting for a long time and always writes very long comments at ra klaus 3 um uh who basically went through the entirety of our uh, reward gather and uh, in many categories agreed with us uh, a specific um exception to this were our picks to villains where he was surprised that neither bester nor morden made it into the picks and i can completely understand that <laughs> without um, maybe maybe a little half of a spoiler oh careful Martin was not yet active enough for my taste hmm. and Bester I counted to the main cast so I didn't pick him he was in one episode yes but he's important so my brain just sorted him out <laughs> um, um yeah well yeah I, to to Morden uh, I would 
I feel the same. He he has done some strange things, but he doesn't felt that much like like a villain so far, uh, because he himself we, we didn't see himself act. Um, therefore, he he has a different impact. And Bester, yeah, I, I kind of ignored him. I don't know. I I couldn't really. Of course, he's a villain, but I couldn't really take him serious because of his, yeah, yeah overall behavior was, yeah, it's okay, little guy, go home, find <laughs> your toys, everything will be all right. I, I don't know, that's that kind of feeling you gave me. I, I think for me, Mr. Bester also didn't come to mind because we really didn't deal with telepathy and psycho very much in this first season. It was a topic that came up very early on with Ivanova and Talia and Mr. Bester and Ironheart. And then for the latter half of the season, it was just kind of there. And so for me, this didn't jump out as one of the main themes of the show that we have big villains about. And Mr. Morton, I don't know. You say he didn't do so much, but I mean, he did make a deal with London, then an entire non-colony blew up. So, I mean... Yes, but you don't see him acting. Yes, that's, yes. that's why he do why it doesn't feel like much of an impact. I think that's that's exactly right. It's, we don't see much of that fallout or impact of this yet. And the consequences are yet unclear. Yeah, and he doesn't give off very strong villain vibes yet. He's not really working against anybody. He's just facilitating bad urges of Londo, which to some degree Lanier also has done and we wouldn't call him a villain, would we? So, <laughs> you know, it's it's just... Uh, I, I But I mean, I, I just wanted to mention it because both of these are cool characters and definitely picks that I can understand, but yeah, there's a little bit of the reasoning why we didn't pick them. Um, Alright, the, the last comment that I wanted to pick is from our chrysalis episode and um 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 i will cut this down because i i have forgotten which part of it it was <laughs> um by the way while you're searching i love it that we get these super long comments i always read them nice. yes mostly me long responding but it's 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 wonderful um, yes, uh, the other one, because he always writes long comments, so it's easy to find something in there. Uh, also from at R.I. Klaus 3, um, who was just very glad that we brought up in the aftermath of the assassination of President Santiago or the death of President Santiago. Nobody knows if it was an assassination because Garibaldi is still in his coma, poor guy. Um, but he was very glad that uh, we brought up 9-11 uh, as a parallel because this is something that he thought of right before we actually uh, mentioned it in the episode. So our minds went into different ways there. Uh, and yeah, he, he brings up here that 9-11 also was, uh, of course, immediately utilized for the massive expansion of state power and surveillance and uh, introducing new checks and uh, you know also shaping foreign policy for a long time. We'll just kind of freely add to that. And... Yeah, by the way, we see things play out here, new people being put into place on Babylon 5, uh, like Sheridan. Uh, it feels like the same thing might happen in Earth Alliance as well, that this is going to be a catalyst for things moving into directions that we are not finding particularly attractive. We will see. We will see. Yeah, this just as a, as a nice observation I wanted to throw in there, and I think we can just take this opportunity to thank everyone 
uh, intensely for all the nice comments and we will make an effort to pick more, answer them more. We will get better at answering them concisely so that we can fit more of them into this segment. Uh, but for now, I think uh, this is a nice start and we will look very much forward to future comments as well. I just had a thought, maybe you have to cut this thought out, I don't know, but wouldn't a German production of Babylon 5 constantly have the dynamic when you think of the Battlestar Galactica remake and Starbuck and, Starbuck and the old drinking guy are fighting? Yes. Yeah, yes. Okay. Starbuck and Colonel Ty fighting would be the main energy of basically everyone. So just imagine Battlestar Galactica, but a bit more unnerving. With more aliens in it, that would be fun. Uh, all right. I think this makes it outro time. Thank you very much for joining us to the premiere of season two. And we will see you next time in an episode whose name I have completely forgotten. I will put it in here. I will not uh, keep you any longer because of this. Until then, you can find us, of course, on all the major social networks, Mastodon, uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and so forth at Third Age Podcast. And of course, all our episodes are available as audio-only podcasts at Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, basically anywhere you can find podcasts, but of course here on YouTube. We are the cutest because here you can see us. We hope you enjoyed our episode today and chime in for the next one.